Hey everyone, Cameron here. Are you enjoying listening to State of Identity each week as much as I enjoy recording it? If so, help us out by taking the 2020 State of Identity listener survey. Just click the link in the show notes below. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you again, and on to the show. Welcome to State of Identity. I'm your host, Cameron D'Ambrosi. Joining me this week is Bill Harmer, Chief Evangelist and CISO at Secure Auth. Bill, welcome to State of Identity. Thank you very much, Cameron. Pleasure to be here. So uh, as someone who uh, has been in this industry for more than a few decades now, uh, before we you know, kind of start talking about what you built at, at Secure Auth, would love to hear uh, a bit of your CV and uh, how you came to find yourself in the uh, broader identity space. Sure. Um, I think uh, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, this I, I always say this is my second career. This is my backup career. My my goal was to originally go into special effects in the movies, and uh, I took a job in a data center one summer to get through uh, through university, and I'm still in that career. Um, I've gone through uh, a lot of uh, corporate work, uh, data centers, IT support, networking. Um, and in 97, I took a leap, uh, quit my job at Sony of Canada and joined a little startup in Toronto. Um, and we did anything and everything. Um, we built networks, we built systems, uh, and we pushed the envelope on a lot of stuff. And that was where uh, we got hacked. Well, I, I got hacked the first time and I was fascinated by how it happened, which that's what sort of led me into the security world. Um, it was it was a, uh, a necessity. Um, and I've been in uh, security since the late 90s, uh, and I started moving into privacy in the late 2000s when I started to see this convergence of all this this uh, identity online. And, and since then, it has been, um, I think, almost without knowing it, as I've gone through companies like SuccessFactors, where I had um, a huge in, uh, um, exp- um exposure to HR and the way HR works and the, the concept of the person um, in European uh, context for identity um, through to uh, Zscaler and the security methodologies that were being put in play for a global security perimeter, um, I realized that it was the identity that's the key to everything. Um, you, you can build systems, you can build connectivity, you can build all these different pieces. But unless you know who put the password in, um, they don't mean a lot. And, and I think that's what's driven me towards this, the, the career in identity. Um, it's, it's all been around how did we build up to this point? Yeah, I think it's been a really, really interesting journey, you know, just in my brief journey uh, relative to yours in identity and um, where you guys are at SecureAuth, it kind of lies at the intersection of so many of uh, those facets. So uh, before we go further, I would love to hear, you know, in your words, maybe a quick 15,000 foot interview, uh, 15,000 foot interview, 15,000 foot overview of uh, what you do at SecureAuth, uh, and then we can dive a little deeper. Well, SecureAuth is a uh, is an identity company. It's a, we provide authentication services. Um, we were born on prem, um, and we have uh, moved out into the cloud with the same code base. Um, so we are able to provide uh, everything from uh, two factor authentication right through to continuous authentication and passwordless. Uh, solutions to uh, enterprises that are either uh, utilizing on-prem services um, for some of the legacy stuff they have or cloud-based solutions, or as we're seeing more and more commonly, uh, a full hybrid of both. 
Fantastic. And, uh, you know, there are so many uh, platforms out there kind of in this space, and it can be a bit hard for lay people or even, you know, someone like myself that's uh, an industry veteran who records a digital identity podcast. Um, what would you say are the key differentiators of the the Secure Auth platform when it comes to uh, this space? Um I would say that it's the flexibility uh, of the complexity, and which is a weird way of stating we do the ugly and gnarly really, really well. Uh, you've got platforms out there that can handle, you know, your your traditional uh, um, lockdown government style, uh, everything uh, hardened and in some. A dark vault somewhere. Uh, you've got other ones that do uh, the web really well, right? Sort of that single sign-on platform to all the uh, success factors, SFDCs, uh, Marketos of the world. Um, we bridge the two, right? Where you have a mainframe or AS400s or you know a, a on-prem world of Lotus Notes because that exploded and never went away. Um, but you're still engaging in some IaaS, uh, some AWS, some Azure stuff like that. And on top of that, you've got uh, web. We handle that really, really well. So in uh, reading between the lines there, essentially uh, helping to bridge that gap between, I guess, what you would call, you know, legacy technology and, and some of the the latest generation stuff, which, you know, everybody, you know, startups are all the rage and everybody's talking about, oh, you know, spinning everything up in the cloud and, you know, focused in many ways on enterprises that were fortunate enough to be able to build their infrastructure from scratch with the latest technology. Uh, but as a, an ex-Big4 consultant who spent most of his time under the hood at uh, big banks. Uh, there's still a lot of stuff that was, you know, written in COBOL and uh, has been around since the seventies <laughs> that, you know, powers some of the most important facets of, uh, of our economy and uh, identity and access management and multi-factor authentication, you know, need to be brought to those systems as well. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, and that's, I think where, where, where we, stepped in and realized, yeah, the, the cloud is, is a powerful, and truthfully, I still hate the term cloud, but the, 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 the as a service world, the software as a service, infrastructure as a service, that's a very powerful dynamic change to the way we do business. And we all understand it. Um, but cloud for cloud's sake is, is a pointless and dangerous endeavor. Um, and when you look at some of those, like you said, some of those banks, some of those uh, very large, very powerful engines that run our economies, um, they are working with technology debt that there is no point in getting rid of because the risk to them of switching over to something else is too great. But how do you how do you continue to develop and improve the security around it and manage the authentication? Um, because that's really what it comes down to. You got to let the right people use the right tools at the right time and get access to the right data. Um, how do you do that? How do you the health industry is the same, right? The the whole concept of validated systems. You apply a patch to something; it's no longer validated. You've got to go through the process, and you, you that's why we have so many healthcare systems that are running Windows XP, SP two, um, right? So 
how do you how do you start building around that and manage the access to it? How do you provide the security for it without disrupting that system? Um, and we we spent our we grew up and we were born on prem dealing with those systems, and we have moved that out into a cloud based solution versus you know being sort of a new startup that was born and bred in the cloud uh, and trying to push back in through a firewall. And uh, you know you guys mention the notion of uh, invisible security on your website and the other. You know, thing that that stuck out to me, and I agree with this completely, is you have a, a seesaw that's kind of uh, tipping between better security and better business. Or you know, I've seen that previously talked about as um, user experience versus high security. And uh, for many folks, they kind of still believe uh, that this needs to be a seesaw. It needs to be a trade off that you can have good UX, you can have good. Uh, throughput for you know employees or customers uh, accessing systems, or you can have good security, and that is a is a false dichotomy. I, I take it that you believe that uh, that is a compromise that you don't need to make. Correct, absolutely. Um, we know, we absolutely know, and anybody who doesn't know this is either closing their eyes or not paying attention. We know that when usability suffers, security suffers with it because the harder you make it for somebody to do something, the more opportunity they will take to move around it, to get around it, because everybody's looking out for themselves primarily, right? They're, they're there to do their job. They don't want to be seen as somebody that's not uh, completing their tasks on time. Etc. Um, it gave birth to shadow IT. Go back 20 years, right? 20 years ago, I was dealing with shadow IT. Um, and that was originally, you know, the finance department hired some young person with good computer skills because the IT department couldn't prioritize them fast enough. IT back then was a black hole of cost. Nobody saw the benefit in it. It was just somewhere where you sank money and it didn't make any money for the business. And when uh, finance needed something built, what they went is they went and hired somebody. And that was shadow IT originally or somebody who could even fix their systems um, quicker than having to put in a help desk ticket. Shadow IT morphed into the world of consumer apps, right? The consumer-based apps that were put out there. And if you look at any one of these things, whether it's Box, Dropbox, or any of the other ones, they're pricing their monthly charges at a very specific rate because they want them to come in under the receipt value needed for your expense management system. So the cheapest CASB you can do is go run a report in finance to see who's got recurring costs coming in under your receipt value and bucketing it under other software or something like that. And you're going to find all these apps being expensed because people don't want to pay for them themselves. That's that's what has grown into shadow IT. And every time we make it difficult, every time security comes along and slaps more firewalls on it, more restrictions, more uh, difficulty, the users find ways around it. Or the CEO calls down and says, punch a hole in it. I need to get business done. And CISOs, I think, today are learning and understanding, and the good ones are, are embracing, that we're in this as a business. Whatever your business is, whether it's altruistic or making money, whatever you're doing, your business has a goal. And whatever that goal is, you need to be on board with how do you enable it to the best ability you can for the risk profile that your company is willing to take. A lot of us security guys, when we grew up and built this stuff, we we had this belief around perfect security. We're going to build the best security system, which nobody can use, right? So we have to find ways to balance it out to say, yes, there are such things as acceptable losses. I will allow, for instance, a marketing laptop to get compromised because I'm going to let them do stuff a little bit easier. And if it gets compromised, I'm simply going to format it and re-image uh, re it and give it back to them. I'm not going to look for a recovery. Whereas if it's the engineer that's designing the next jet engine for my company, 
No, he's not getting that kind of latitude. They're going to have tougher, harder security. So it's, it's the concept of security typically paints everything with the same brush. Everybody has to change their password every 30 days. Everybody's got to have 16 characters with a, a complexity that, that rivals algorithmic math. You know, and, and that's not true. That's why we should be looking at how do we make some harder what's appropriate and where can we make them less secure ostensibly? Where can we go to passwordless? Where can we take the complexity out of the user experience, but still have a reasonable understanding of who's coming in? Yeah, I, I really, really like that approach. You know, As somebody who uses a password manager, practices good password hygiene, and you know, makes robust passwords, uh, the fact that you know, and this is just going to be a, a personal vent sesh for me, I suppose, in some ways, you know, like uh, <laughs> certain airlines that I've dealt with, they put a cap on the number of characters your password can have, yet they make you do the whole, okay, yep. you can't have a period, but you must have one of the other punctuation symbols and needs to have a number and an uppercase symbol, uh, whatever. Um, and then after all that, then they make you do three knowledge-based recovery questions that are completely discoverable exactly. and arbitrary. You know, so of course, uh, normally what I do for those is I just create a, a gibberish string that I save my password manager. You know, what was in your first pet, and it's just a string of of characters. Um, only I know. Right. They don't allow you to do that. It's a drop-down menu with only like five or six choices. Um, you know, it's, yeah. What's your favorite right. type of ice cream, right? And and it's got the, the 10 there. Yeah, you're, you're hitting on it. You're hitting on it exactly because it's, again, it's this complexity that that they believe applies to everyone and everything. Um, and, and more than likely, you've got a throwback password or two that you know hits the complexity rules that they want, but you're reusing that all over the place. I know I do. Like, I mean, when it comes to Netflix um, or, or one of the online services, trying to punch in a password with a remote control is mental, right? Especially if it's 16 characters, alphanumeric with symbols, you're going to be there for two hours and get carpal tunnel in your thumb trying to get that put in. And some of those services are figuring it out. They're figuring out ways to do two-factor auth where it says, go to your uh, your other system, your laptop, log in, put in the code, it'll pop up, you authorize. Other ones don't get it. And, and I think people get, especially right now with everybody at home, um, they're going to see there's going to have to have this need because you'll see swings to the services that do good password um, user journey and the ones that don't. So given that we are in the midst of you know an unprecedented shift to uh, a remote workforce, uh, from that perspective, you know how, how have you seen your customers uh, adapting or given that you guys kind of already seem to prioritize um, a dynamic approach to security, has it been an easier transition for your customers given uh, that you're prepared to kind of uh, provision a BYOD approach and give people uh, the access that they need in a more dynamic way? Yeah. Um, you know, even using ourselves as an example, we slid right into this with, I think, uh, I, I think I heard from the IT team, something like a half a dozen extra tickets on the Monday morning when we, uh, when we transitioned to work from home and we've had customers doing the exact same thing. We've had a few customers reach out and ask for extra licenses, which we've turned on for them because they didn't plan to have everybody out there. Um, but we have not seen, um, any degradation in the services, uh, on their side, um, that, that have been, 
meaningful. And I've even reached out to some counterparts in some of the um, network, uh, the uh, the um, service-based security industries, and seen massive, massive spikes in the the remote access requirements that they're using, um, and and trying to deal with now as to how do they do it. And I think this is the areas where. You know, when you look at IT as a broad uh, spectrum of, of services and tools that are purchased, a lot of the services in history were virtually everything was purchased on uh, capacity, right? You, as an IT uh, leader, you would look at your total usability structure, or you'd see how many you've got. You'd sort of pick your highest point, add twenty percent for buffer, and you'd say that's what I'm buying capacity for. And whether that was uh, concurrent VPN licenses or um, uh, you know, bandwidth or, or throughput, that's how you did it. Um, the the SaaS-based models that are coming out for things like the, the VPNs and stuff like that, they're buying on uh, consumption, right? So user, ha- there's a named user, they've got a license, they use it and they don't have to worry, theoretically don't have to worry about the capacity. Um, on our side, the great part was we have, you know, we're authentication. So every user's got a, a, an account. So that part worked out really well. Um, we just had to make sure that customers were, were provisioned with enough capacity in some cases, or could we offload that into our cloud-based solution to allow them to expand where needed. And from that perspective of, you know, thinking about the interface between systems and, and how users are approaching them, uh, do you see uh, this pandemic as really making a permanent impact on the IT landscape in terms of how companies uh, approach their infrastructure and how employees are going to be interfacing with it? Or is this something that um, you know is going to be a ripple in the pond, uh, but it's going to fade back down as uh, you know we are able to return to work? Uh, or do you think this is going to be a permanent impact that we're going to be talking about 10, 15 years down the oh, line? Yeah. Yeah, no, this was the meteor meteor in the ocean. This was not a ripple in a pond. Um, and there's a bunch of different uh, sort of aspects to that. One, take the, the simple one. You probably have millions of workers around the world who have been asking to work from home, either part-time, full-time, um, and have been told, no, you can't do your job. We, we need you in the office. Uh, well, <laughs> if things work out, they just proved that they can do it from home. So you're going to have that 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 excuse has been taken out of the out of the the, the argument at that point. So you're going to have companies looking at it, saying, "Okay, how do we deal with this?" Companies are going to look at it and go, "How can I plan for the next one?" Right? Um, I I have have participated in pandemic planning all the way back into 2003, 2000, or 2004, 2005 uh, for a financial institution, um, and and it was understanding very very uh, dramatic numbers. And so businesses, I think, are now thinking, "Okay, look, you know, we had all these SaaS based applications." And they worked great because uh, there was no change, but we had these on-prem ones. How are we going to manage that? So they're going to be looking at their infrastructure and understanding how do they balance this out for when this happens, not if, but when this happens again, um, for whatever reason. Um, I think when you think when you when you go down the path of digital transformation, right? We've heard this this term being coined for the last four or five years, you need to get into digital transformation. And that's pretty broad. It can it can be around your your data or it can be around your your uh, architecture. Um, 
companies that were even considered maybe fast followers in this, the the ones that sort of sit back and go, okay, I'm going to see what's happening out there and maybe I'll test the waters with an AWS or something like that, uh, or I'll try an application that's that's not critical to my business, have just been kicked into this. They've been forced into the digital transformation. So they are going to have to immediately start figuring out how to make this work. Um, and th- there isn't a, I don't think there's a single person out there that is will make changes that will say, I'm going to undo all those changes. At the least, what they're going to do is they're going to say, how can I make those changes better, more effective? And maybe as a cold site style DR idea, it'll sit there. They won't use it every day. Uh, But I suspect businesses will look at this and go, huh, maybe we don't need all 600 seats at that very expensive downtown New York building. Maybe we only need 300. We can cut our uh, you know our facilities costs, and we can allow people to work from home. And we can cycle them through. You know, from your perspective, uh, does the posture that enterprises need to take change when you are considering uh, a more distributed workforce, or is it really uh, arbitrary in some ways where folks are logging in from? Given that you know, if they're still using a corporate device, does it really matter if they all happen to be in the same place on the same network, or does it add additional uh, complexities and considerations that you recommend they take uh, when configuring their security posture? Um, I've always said it doesn't matter where they are. Location is not uh, an indicator of trust. Um, And the reason for that is because if I take the laptop home, I get compromised there, I bring it back to that location, there should be no additional trust. Um, I think what we will see is we will start to see a better understanding of how to manage uh, a device, whether it's corporate or BYOD. um, And we're going to see a larger spectrum of checks, right? It shouldn't just be, does it have a, a certificate on it? Yes, it does. Oh, free reign. No. Um, you're going to be doing things like device recognition, location, improbable travel, the whole concept of um, of somebody logging in in New York and then suddenly logging in in uh, Amsterdam, right? That's, that doesn't happen that way. Uh, validating things like IP whitelist and blacklist as they move around and what behaviors are happening with those users. Now, what you can also do is you can add on top of a location Uh, some things that maybe give you rise to not asking for a password, say, right? You go to a building, you you hit your card key. Okay, you've got a card key. So that's something you have, right? There's a second factor. But maybe you can also look at the speed that it takes the average person or that person to move from that card key to their desk. Over a period of time, you start to look at the variances of it and understand we can determine a behavior of the user when they go to the office. You know, we know Bill likes coffee, so I'm going to go get a coffee every time before I go to my desk. And you can plan those types of things out. You can look at the uh, things like the accelerometers and the tilt mechanisms in the phone to understand, am I carrying it in my hand? Am I carrying it in my pocket? Am I running versus walking? Right? And you look at all of those pieces as you continue to develop. And I think that's where the future of this has to go. You cannot just keep uh, saying, I want more factors on it and ask the user for them. I can't keep asking more questions, finding more uh, numbers to punch in you know, all these things, what you have to start doing is you have to start looking at that device that truthfully, when you start looking at the device is a clean, you know, without a personality or an opinion, though my phone does seem to have a personality at times. Uh, without that, it, it is a fairly uh, impressive representation of who I am because it it remembers my location. It knows where I go. It knows the things I do, the way, the order in which I do them. And having all of those pieces, all of that type of uh, data and being able to understand it and utilize it in validating who you are, who your digital self is, um, is going to be the future of where this goes. 
Fantastic. And from, uh, you know, a future looking perspective, obviously we've, you know, unpacked some of your views about what you expect to see uh, in terms of these longer term shifts, but uh, focusing on, you know, call it the next one year timeline, uh, would love for you to look into your crystal ball and uh, predict what we might see across the broader identity authentication and uh, identity and access management space. Any major trends that you uh, are continuing to uh, predict that they accelerate? Yeah, I think uh, very much around that, the concept of a dynamic perimeter and incorporating behavioral uh, analysis into who the person is to determine if it is truly them. Because um, the days of keying a password, you know, the threat actors know it. They they can put, build malware that just waits until you crack open the VPN, put in the right username and password. And once it's there, um, start doing their thing. Um, when you look at a SaaS-based application, if you're running a SaaS-based HR solution, think success factors, right? You can't put uh, uh, data loss prevention tools around a success factors because I am not in the data center. I need that to come out of the data center. So automatically, the the tool at the end can't say that it's it's uh, exfiltrating data because all the data has to leave. And in fact, nobody from success factors should ever access their customers' data, right? That's what you would want in a SaaS-based solution. So how do you start understanding what is the user doing and what are the, when are they doing it and is it appropriate? It, it's all based on the user. So also having that continuous um, identity authentication uh, cycle happening during the lifespan of the user journey is going to be very, very key to this. Um, I think because of what's happening with COVID, it, the push out, it is forcing people to say, who are my users and where are they? Um, you're going to see an uptick in VPN connectivity uh, solutions. You're going to see an uptick in identity solutions because those are the two keys. You have to get somewhere securely, but until you know the user at the end, you can't risk opening that pipe. So I think we're going to see, uh, uh, um, I, I, honestly, I think uh, for companies like us, we are, we are at the perfect place right now. Um, to deal with the the focus of what's going to be happening. And uh, for folks who are interested in learning more about the platform, uh, figuring out how they can get it implemented, or uh, just, again, learning more about the features, functionality, what they're missing out on, uh, and where they can really improve that posture based on what we've talked about, uh, where should they go to learn more? Uh, head on over to uh, www.secureauth.com. Um, you'll find uh, tons of uh, information on the website, plus uh, contact information for either the uh, the thought leaders at the company, myself. Um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, I'm hosting a couple of virtual roundtables over the next month. Um, just because of the whole COVID thing, we can't travel. Might as well at least keep the discussions happening. Fantastic. And uh, we will be glad to include those links in the show notes below. Keep an eye out for those. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really, really insightful conversation. Really appreciate you making the time and uh, hope to be able to uh, connect with you again soon, maybe over a beer and in person once uh, all of this has blown through with any luck. Absolutely. I look forward to it myself. And uh, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.